0: talk about the issue of gun control today. I'm going to share statistics so we get a basic idea of what the gun control debate looks like in America right now, what gun violence looks like in America, because our perception might be a little bit different than what we hear in the media. So we're going to get a basic understanding Then we're going to look at two groups of people, you know, both sides. The first group, people who believe that gun laws should remain as they are. And then the second group of people who would favor some kind of stricter gun laws in America. So. Um, and, uh, and then talk about a way forward. So that's where we're headed during the sermon. So, um, as we've said already, it, guns are an extremely emotional topic. It's, it's so emotional, I think, uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a cultural issue. Um, people who grew up being comfortable with guns um, may feel like their rights are being attacked and they believe that the Second Amendment is there to help us as a people and to protect us as a people. And so they have strong emotion. And then people who want stricter gun laws feel strong emotion because they see the violence and the death that is brought about uh, by guns. And, and so um, mass shootings uh, captivate our attention and they have increased slightly over the past few years. And, and so we're gonna talk about those and how they're functioning in society. And so uh, I just wanna again acknowledge this is an extremely emotional issue. Uh, I grew up in the country. My, uh, I live with my grandparents and my mom until I was six years old. We lived in southeastern Ohio, which is Appalachia. And if you know anything about Appalachia, and I'm proud to be from there, um, but think of fiddles and moonshine, and that's, that gives you an idea. And my grandpa owned 72 acres of mostly woods. He did some farming. But it was mostly forest, hilly forest, it was gorgeous. The, you would see the mist rise off the trees in the morning. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. And, and um, it was the kind of place where you know, if, if somebody breaks into your home or if you feel threatened at all, the police are going to take, it's going to be a while. It's just so far, and you have these hilly, curvy roads. And, and you just kind of learn, and that was the frontier part of America, that you have to protect yourself. And that's part of the culture, and, and deer hunting was, is big there. And, and my grandpa had a, a 410 shotgun hanging on a gun rack above his bed. And it was loaded, and it wasn't locked. And he told me, "Don't you ever touch that." And I'm glad I didn't. I never did. I listened to him. But you know, if, if something happened, he was ready. That was just the mentality, and, and probably like every guy and, and a lot of ladies uh, in that culture, guns were just a normal part of life. It was like a farm implement, it was just something that's a part of your life. And yet, we live in a vast country with many different cultures. And perhaps if you think of a gun, you think of a nine millimeter used by gang, you know, gangbangers, you know, and and. Uh, a big city in, in, the, in the U.S., and you think of little kids dying at the hands of handguns and drive-by shootings. And maybe that's what you think of, because that culture is real as well in the United States. And so it's difficult to even begin talking about this, because we we just hear the word gun, and we automatically picture different things. You picture literally a different gun in your mind. I probably picture a shotgun, maybe because of my background. Maybe you picture a handgun, because you that's what you've seen. And so it's, just, it's difficult to even know where to start, because it's so... Uh, emotional. Before we get into the gun stats, one more reason why it's such an emotional issue, because of the mass shootings that we see. And so this is a chart, you can't read these probably, it's too small, but these show the deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history. At the top is Vegas. Um, this is the guy in the hotel. And he shot people attending a country concert. They were watching Jason Aldean, the, the country star, and he killed 58 people, that's the red bar, and he wounded over 500 people, that's the blue bar, from a window in a hotel room. After that's the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, which is a gay nightclub. So Somebody went in targeting the, the gay population and, and killed, uh, I can see it better on this screen, killed 49 people and injured 48. And then after that is Virginia Tech, and you go down, uh, after that is Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook, where the, the young man's stole his mother's guns, killed her first, as she slept in her bed, and then went to Sandy Hook Elementary and, and killed 27 first and second graders and teachers. And then you see, you know, in Texas, San Ysidro, San Bernardino, Edmond, Oklahoma, Fort Hood, Texas, Columbine is the last one on that list. So another reason Guns are so emotional. Thank you for that, Susie. Now we can go on to the the gun statistics slide. 41% of American households own a gun. Uh, Americans make up 4% of the world's population, but American civilians own 46% of the firearms in the world. Did you know that? American civilians own almost half of all civilian firearms uh, in the world. It amounts to 120.5 firearms for every 100 residents. Um... The Small Arms Survey found that American civilians own more guns than those held by civilians in the top 25 other countries combined. Uh, there were 39,773 total gun deaths in 2017, that's the last year that there were full statistics on gun violence in America, and some of the numbers disagree, by the way, the Center for Disease Control, FBI, Trace, Pew Research, they there are different organizations that keep these numbers, and some are a few thousand off, it's just good to know. Approximately 75,000 Americans are treated in the ER every year for non-fatal gunshot wounds. In 2017, this isn't on the slide, but just more detail to the total gun death number. In 2017, 60% of all gun deaths were by suicide. That holds true about every year. Somewhere 60%, a little over 65% of gun deaths every year are by suicide. So that 39,773 number that you see, about 60% of those in 2017 were by suicide, 37% of gun deaths were murder. The other 3% were caused by accident or um, people killed uh, by law enforcement. 75% of all murders in the United States are by gun. Um, Gun suicides reached their highest recorded level in 2017, but the number of gun murders remained far below the peak in 1993 when there were 18,253 gun homicides. And so violent crime levels in the U.S. are actually falling. I don't know if you know that or not, but they're actually falling. And then uh, to that ER statistic there about the number of Americans treated, um, about 8,000 children under 18 go to the emergency room for a gunshot wound every year. Gunshots are the third leading cause of death for minors in the U.S. behind auto accidents and cancer. Uh, Johns Hopkins found that firearm-related injuries cost $2.8 billion in emergency room and inpatient medical charges every year. And then to how many Americans die in mass shootings, we saw that chart of the of the deadliest shootings, according to the FBI uh, and the gun violence archive last, well, two years ago now, 2018, uh, 373 people died in mass shootings in 2018. Uh, So it helps us at least to get a picture of what gun violence looks like in the United States, what the numbers are. We're gonna talk more about that when we look at the two sides, but it at least gives us an overview. Now, you may have already known all of that. Maybe none of that was a surprise to you, as I research these sermons, some things are a surprise to me, so I'm learning as I, as I look at these, uh, these studies as well. But that's the current face of gun violence in America right now. Now, part of the reality of living in a country where there are that many guns, there are more guns than there are people, is that there are people who, uh, even aside from mass shootings, who are hurt by gun violence and they have nothing to do with the, with the gun or even the the fight that was taking place. So uh, this past August, two young men were arguing with each other near a monthly art gallery hop event in Kansas City called First Fridays. And one of the young men was 18 years old and he pulled out a handgun and he fired nine shots. Eight of those shots hit cars or buildings and, and didn't hurt anybody. But one of those shots struck a person and it was from some distance away. So the people um, at this art event were a distance away from where this fight took place. They may not have even known there was a fight taking place. But one of those bullets struck a 25-year-old woman named Erin Langhofer. I have a picture of her. She was standing with her boyfriend at the art event. And that one round struck her in the head and she fell to the ground. And she was taken to the hospital where she died. And uh, I know that story because it was told by our friend Adam Hamilton. And when I'm away, we watch video sermons from this pastor in Kansas City named Adam Hamilton. And and, uh, Aaron's father, Tom, is a pastor on staff at that church. And so just this past August, that whole church, and, and really the whole city of Kansas City, was rocked by this random gunshot, one round, that hit this young woman who wasn't even involved and was a distance away from the fight. At an event that Kansas City wants to promote, this monthly, uh, you know, this gallery hop, this art exhibit. And um, her dad, Tom, sobbed on Adam's shoulders. Adam told a story, or told a story where um, the, the night or two after this happened, her father, Tom, who's a pastor, just put his head down on Adam's shoulder and he just soaked Adam's shirt with tears. And Adam said, the staff pastor, you know, and these are, these, are, these are pastors. And he said he just buried his face in Adam's shoulder. And he just kept saying, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it, as he cried, grieving his daughter. And he said, my daughter was special. He said, of course, everybody thinks that about their, parent, their children. But my daughter was special. She was 25 years. She was actually a domestic violence counselor at a local uh, counseling facility. And he said, my daughter was special. How could this happen to her? How could God let this happen to her? Of course there were theological questions for him, but how how could this happen to her? And and so there is another face to gun violence in America where there's so many guns. And of course, this eighteen year old kid, he never dreamed. I was an eighteen year old guy once. He never he never intended this for this to happen. He never dreamed in a million years that would happen. Of course he shouldn't have had a gun, he shouldn't have been shooting it the way he was, but he didn't intend for this to happen. He was charged with second-degree murder. His life's over, essentially. Just think of the the grief and the sadness caused around this issue. So I am going to attempt to fairly summarize the two sides of this this, this issue. So first, those who want current gun laws maintained, and those who want stricter gun laws put in place. And so first, those who want current gun laws maintained. And if you're in this camp, you may feel like I've already set you up for failure. Because I told an emotional story, but there are emotional stories that would be told by people who support current gun laws. How they maybe saved their family from an intruder. There was a shooting in Texas a couple, uh, couple of weeks ago in a church, and a, and a guy with a gun killed the intruder. And that's, that doesn't happen very often. It's statistically improbable, but they might point to issues, you know, uh, instances like that. But so there are emotional stories on both sides. But first, they would say those who want current ma- uh, gun laws maintained, they would say, "Well, the Second Amendment." states that the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so this is a right that is guaranteed to them by our Bill of Rights. And I have, the next slide shows the, the Second Amendment in full. It says a well-regulated militia being necessary to, secure, to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So, of course, the Militia Clause causes debate. And there are people who would say, well, we, have, we live in a different time than we did then. But there was no U.S. military at the time of, of the Bill of Rights. And so there's been a debate whether... You know, this, we mean the same thing or need the same thing, or if the context has changed, but the truth is, throughout American history and currently, even in uh, um, rulings not that long ago, it's been supported that this, belie- this uh, amendment means that individuals have the right to bear arms. And so, aside from a militia, this has been interpreted as the right of individuals to keep and bear arms. And then they would say secondly, they support maintaining current gun laws because 60% of gun deaths are by suicide. Of course, that's tragic. And at the same time, a truth of mental health and counseling is, and this sounds, it's difficult to say this, but it is a a general truth about mental illness and counselors will say this uh, And suicide is that folks who do want to take their lives will normally find a way to do that. And so if the gun is not available, there are other means. They would point to stats, for example, in the UK, where guns are very difficult to obtain. The suicide rate is slightly lower than it is in the United States. There's a slight difference. And so people who support the Second Amendment would say, when we see there 39,773 deaths in 2017, 60% of those people were people who took their own lives. And if, with, if they didn't have access to a gun, they probably would have found another way to do that. And statistically, that would be true. And so we're just looking at reasons that a person would give, and this sounds, you know, it's so morbid and it's, it's emotional and it sounds crass to talk about it like this, but we're being, we're being fair to both sides. They would say gun deaths are rare compared to the leading causes of death in the United States. The next slide I have the leading causes of death in 2017, and it does put numbers in perspective. And once again, we're talking about human beings here. But we are looking at data, and so let's compare the data. Heart disease was the number one premature, or cause of premature death in the United States in 2017. 635,260 people, uh, according to the Center for Disease Control, died from heart disease, and then cancer. And you see the numbers there. And then homicide uh, was you know somewhere around 15. And, and so you see heart disease at 635,000 people, and you see homicide at 19,000 or 17,000, depending on the, the, the group that's counting. And they would just say, you know, you're infringing upon my right, wanting to take away my guns or making it harder for me to find, find a gun or buy a gun. And the numbers just don't seem to add up to somebody who believes that gun laws should remain the same. Uh, they might also point out that uh, in the gun deaths in the United States, by far, uh, you know, somewhere in 75-80% of those homicide deaths by gun in the United States are gang related. We can go into that next slide too and just look at the rest of the reasons um, that they're gang related. And so um, that doesn't mean that guns don't, if without the gun there would be the same amount of death because that's not true. Guns are more lethal than knives if gangs use knives or other forms of of weapons. But they would point out that most of the homicides that take place in the United States are gang related. That it's not the person who's just walking down the street. It's not somebody breaking into your home or, or et cetera. Another reason that people who support current laws might give, uh, and I've heard this saying, of course you have to. guns don't kill people, people do. And so they would point to the role of mental illness in mass shootings or um, evil choices of people and would say, well, the solution isn't to take away guns, the solution is the human heart. And there are a lot of pastors that would probably say this, a lot of churches that would probably say this, we just have to create a healthier society where... People are taught to respect human life and, and to not be violent. And, and so they would tend to take the, the focus off of the gun and put it on the person. Uh, another reason that people who maintain current laws would give is that gun control means only criminals will have guns. and So if you make it harder for law-abiding citizens to have guns, their assumption is that people who intend uh, ill with their guns are not going to get them legally anyway. They're getting them to the black market or they're stealing them. And so you're taking guns out of the hands of 90, uh, you know, law-abiding citizens, which are 99.9% of all gun owners in the United States are law-abiding citizens. And they're saying, well, you're infringing them on my right, and I haven't done anything wrong. And, and I know from my background that people who are gun owners and may own multiple guns, often they're pillars of their community. And they're 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 people who want to protect their families and their, and their churches and, and their cities, and they're good people. They're salt-of-the-earth people. They're people who who would say, uh, you know, um, only, only criminals would have guns. And you might agree with that or disagree with that, but these are people who would give you the shirt off their back. These are people that are wonderful people. And so there's, there's a lot of disagreement between good people. I'm convinced of that, at least, when it comes to this issue. And then lastly, they would say that guns protect citizens from tyranny. They would point to the Founding Fathers and, and the Federalist Papers and... and uh, and rightfully say that our founding fathers believed that that a population having arms protected them from tyranny. Now they were thinking about tyranny from England as well because we had just gained our independence. And so they, they figured, well, if our population is armed, it makes it harder for other countries to come in and, and uh, to, to conquer us and for us to be you know, subservient to a dictator so we can protect ourselves. There was some degree of concern without about that happening within the United States as well, but generally speaking, the framers had in mind that they protected us from tyranny from the outside, Um, but that's part of the the background of the Second Amendment. So these are reasons that people might give who want to maintain current gun laws. And now to the other side, here are some reasons uh, people who want stricter gun control laws might give. Uh, They would point out the Second Amendment does not guarantee the right to any type of gun. So... There is a debate in our society. There are people who would say, yeah, let's just confiscate guns. And you remember there was a presidential candidate who said, hell yeah, we're going to take your guns. And that's been used as an NRA commercial since that uh, that debate. Um, So people, I think, who make up some kind of middle majority in the United States are saying, well, we're not necessarily going to confiscate guns. That's not really on the table. But the Second Amendment does not guarantee the right to any type of gun. So there's another presidential candidate who says, you know, somewhere between a slingshot and a nuke, we draw a line. And, and that's that has been, ebbed and flowed a little throughout history. So from 1994 to 2004, there was the so-called assault weapons ban. Gun rights uh, advocates would, would question the use of assault weapon. What does assault weapon mean? But, but folks who want stricter gun laws would say the Second Amendment doesn't guarantee you can have any kind of gun you want. And so we're not talking about taking guns away, we're just talking about what kinds of guns and how, what capacity of a magazine can you have. How much, how much damage can the gun inflict in a short amount of time. In Dayton, the mass shooter got off 41 rounds in 30 seconds. And so folks who want stricter gun laws would say we just want less guns in society that are, that are capable of that kind of damage in that short amount of time. They would point out that the U.S. has by far more gun-related deaths than any other country. And uh, I believe we have a chart that shows the number of guns um, uh, in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world in the top half. I think, do we have that, Susie? That chart. And then the bottom half of the chart shows the number of gun murders compared to other countries. We may not have it. Sorry. The top half of the chart had a big red line representing the number of gun owners in the United States. It was much more than any other country in the world. And then the bottom of that chart had a red line showing gun deaths, and it was much more than any other country in the world. So there was a correlation between the number of guns in the country and the number of gun deaths. So more guns equals more gun deaths. And that's, uh, that's the point that they would make. You were in the right place, Susie. Go ahead and go back there. And so they would say uh, the U.S. leads the world in mass shootings by far. Um, that's certainly true in that chart that I don't have. And then they would say guns are used largely, and this, this is the right uh, slide here, guns are used largely against women in domestic violence situation, um, and w- women and children, and their children killed by accident. So this is a graphic put together by 538.com. And this is a, um, a general accounting for gun death over the past several years. Each pixel represents a person. And so you're looking at somewhere, like, like in 2017 it was 39,773, looking somewhere between 35 and 40,000 people represented here who died by gun violence in any given year in the United States. The red pixels are people who died by suicide. The blue pixels are people who died by homicide. And then there's a yellow bar on the end, a thin yellow bar, and those are people who died by accident or um, at, the hands of, uh, at the hands of law enforcement within that blue section half of all of the pixels in the blue section repre- each pixel represents a person half of all the blue pixels are young men between the ages of 15 and 29 so half of all gun deaths in America are, are guys between 15 and 29 two thirds of that are black young men and then uh, the other half would be you know, other, other ethnicities, other age groups. And so folks who want stricter gun laws would say that gun homicides in the United States are linked to poverty. They're linked to areas where there are less opportunities. There's a lot of gang activity, illegal drug activity, and it uh, disproportionately affects young men and young black men. And so, once again, if we're trying to get a face of of gun violence in America, we would have to understand that, yes, there are random deaths, like Aaron Langhoffer's, but in any given year, there's a a disproportionate number of um, ethnic minorities and people in impoverished areas that die at the hands of guns, and and they would say that's a justice issue. There are other issues behind that, poverty, crime, gang activity, opportunity, racism, and there's something we could do as a country to decrease those homicides. Um, people who support stricter gun laws might answer the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the belief that, well, if, if there are less law-abiding citizens who have guns, only the criminals will have guns. They might say, well, less guns, according to the law of supply and demand, would probably mean higher prices for guns. So if there were less guns in society, it's probably more difficult for the common criminal to get their hands on a gun. And then finally, uh, people who want stricter gun laws would just say, well, stricter gun laws are based on common sense. Because uh, in any state in America, you know, to drive a car, you have to go take a driver's class and demonstrate that you know how to drive and you have to pass a written test that you know how to use this thing. And then you have to pass a driver's test where you demonstrate that you know how to drive and then you get a license saying that you're somebody who's qualified to operate this vehicle. And And they would say, you know, of course, that's a safety issue. Knowing, you know, whether somebody knows how to drive or not, that's important to all of our lives. And they would say, it just makes sense that there would be something similar for people who want to buy a gun, that a person could have uh, hate speech all over their social media. They can, they could uh, have a background that would suggest they really should not have a gun. And in lots of states in the United States, there's some loophole where they could just go get a gun. And so they would say, you know, our laws... No, our laws are different than common sense. Of course, if you asked any legislator, should, should somebody with a, a criminal background or a, a history of a kind, the kind of mental health challenge that would, might make them violent, hey, should they get a gun? They'd probably say no. But our laws don't reflect that. Our laws would say, "Old, well, do you hate other groups of people? Do you have challenges in your life that tend to make you violent? Well, have a gun. And they would say our laws just don't reflect... Common sense, so I've tried to fairly represent what both sides might say. This is not an exhaustive list. I'm, my efforts are probably feeble, but my goal is that both sides have been fairly heard and they feel like you know, they, they are represented. And then I wanna talk about faith here in a second and what our faith might say about guns and look at a way, a way forward. Um, as we talk about our faith and how it applies, and as we think about this issue, it's probably important to remind ourselves once again that the way we feel about it is probably informed by our own culture, our own, our own upbringings, our own experiences in life. And it's easy to draw battle lines uh, over this issue and demonize the other side and misunderstand and, and call them names. And then when we get into our own echo chamber and we, we have, I have my side and the other people are way over there and, and they're just dumb, we disagree with them because they're dumb and these people over here have drawn that battle line and those people were over there and they're just dumb and we disagree because they're dumb. And, and we tend to think that the answer is simple. We have this ideal in mind. Well, no guns means no violence or no gun violence. And these people over here, well, more, more guns would stop the gun violence. And, and we just kind of have our, our, our answers and maybe you've heard the saying that when, uh, when answers are simple, When you try to give simple answers to a complex problem, they turn out being neat, simple and wrong. And it's easy in this particular uh, subject to to come up with answers that are neat, simple and wrong. And we have our ideals and and those are good. We should have them. And at the same time, sometimes the ideals um, are faced with reality and the situation is complex. And when you have people who feel so differently from each other, living in the same country, and in the same state, maybe in the same church, then, then the answers are not necessarily as simple. I was thinking about uh, a video that I love. This is from a few years ago. And, and Hannah and I have two little boys, and, and they're growing up too fast. This is from several years ago. Um, I have a little silent video when we took our, our oldest son to Peter Piper Pizza. And, uh, how many of you realize if maybe you have kids or maybe you're an aunt and uncle or just, you know, with friends you hang out with Peter Piper pizza is like a crack house to most children. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like they absolutely love Peter Piper pizza and you try to get them to eat and they don't eat because they're so excited by the flashing lights and the games and, 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 um, our boys love Peter Piper pizza and, and we took him there. He was so little. He didn't really understand the point of the games. You, you play the game, and it gives you tickets. Sometimes you play games that, where you win a jackpot, and it'll give you all kinds of tickets. And so I want you to watch this video, and I'll just kind of explain what's happening. So we took him to Peter Piper Pizza, and, um, he, uh, and we have kind of an old computer here. Hopefully the video will play. And he had this game. There's Hannah there with our oldest son, and he hit the jackpot. So the, the lights spun around, and you had to push this button. And if you push the button at just the right time, it spits out like 250 tickets. And he he won the jackpot. So I got out my camera. You know, you never get it, the the actual event. You know, in your camera, you get the aftermath. Um, and so all these tickets are pointing are pouring out, and he's trying to put coins in the machine because he doesn't understand what's happening. Like, well, you just won a jackpot, buddy. We're su- super excited. Hannah and I are thinking this is like Vegas or something. You know, you just won the jackpot. And he's like, da, 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 and and put trying to put more coins in. And Hannah's explaining to him, you just won all these tickets. You won the jackpot. And then he gives me five. And then he says, I win." That was his reaction. Now check this out. We took him to another game. Just a few minutes later, he won another jackpot that same night. And so, and so Hannah's like, maybe we should go to Vegas. Like, maybe, maybe we should. T-. And I'm like, you're a pastor's wife. How could, no. I totally, I, I'm probably the one who said we should go to Vegas. And so, in his childlike innocence he didn't understand what was happening you know he didn't understand what jackpots mean and you get all these tickets and prizes and we had to explain everything and sometimes it, in our idealism in our convictions no matter which way we lean or maybe we're way on you know one side of an issue we treat an issue like it's easy and we have kind of a a childlike innocence about our convictions and we're idealistic and the reality is just not that simple. And, of course, as people of faith, we have statements like Paul says that, you know, we should have the faith of a child. And that applies to theological questions, too, when we talk about faith. Like, well, just have the faith of a child. And what, what he meant by that, I think, was that children generally trust you when you tell them things. Like, we told them, you won the jackpot. And he's like, I win. And, and so he believes his parents. And you trust God with your life. And you look to God for guidance. You look to scripture. You want to follow Jesus. This is vitally important for people of faith that childlike faith means that we look to God for guidance and sometimes it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes scripture tells us to do something that's counterintuitive to the, the, you know, the American way of life that's consumeristic and, and materialistic and, and all about just getting ahead all the time and dominating other people. And That's why Paul says you should have the faith of a child. At the same time, it doesn't mean you should have the understanding of a child. It doesn't mean that we should look at theological questions or or debates or Bible interpretation as though we can't be thinking adults. In another place, Paul says, you you used to drink milk or you're drinking milk like a child, but now you need to grow up and eat adult food. He uses that as an illustration for growing in your faith to the extent that you're able to think about difficult issues and interpret the scripture in context and follow Jesus Christ and, and what that really means for your life as a thinking person. And so I think that's important to realize as we talk about these issues. So as we, as we move towards wrapping it up, you know, there are questions people have, like, well, you know, Jesus says turn the other cheek. Don't resist an evil person. Does that mean I can't defend my family? Does that mean if somebody attacks my family, I, can't, I have to let them kill my family? Is that what that means? Does that mean if I see domestic violence taking place in a, in a I don't know, some store parking lot, I just walk on by because, hey, just turn the other cheek? And so as thinking people, as people who want to have the the faith of a child, but not the understanding of a child, we want to think deeply about these issues. So quickly, what does the Bible say about self-defense or violence? Well, the truth is when you read the Bible regarding violence, it depends on which part you read. Some of the biggest questions we have about the Bible are some parts of the Bible are very troubling when it comes to violence. Other parts we find more lofty and inspiring. And, and so to this particular question of self-defense, Exodus 22, this is in the, in the Old Testament laws, the Hebrew Bible laws. It says if a thief is caught breaking in at night and is struck a fatal blow, the defender, the homeowner, is not guilty of bloodshed. So this is an ancient people trying to work out their own laws. Uh, and the verse after that, which we don't have on here, but if, if, the, if the person breaks into the house in the daytime, you couldn't kill them. It was a way of saying maybe they didn't intend harm as much. And so there is an example of self-defense here. Deuteronomy 19.21 is the eye for an eye principle. It's lex talionis, eye for an eye, hand for hand, foot for foot. And this is kind of after a trial. So somebody's committed a crime, and once again, this is the ancient world. And so how how do we render justice to somebody who has hurt somebody else? And Deuteronomy 19.21 says, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So you render justice to that person according to whatever they've done. If they've taken a life, you kill them, you execute them. If they've, if they've cut off somebody's hand, you cut off their hand. If they poked out their eye, you poked out their eye. And, and so we would find that to be a barbaric way of rendering justice now to three centuries, really three century, or millenniums removed, three millennia removed from, from this law but this law actually functioned to limit violence if you think about how we all operate in our human nature if somebody hurts us do we tend to just retaliate in kind or do we tend to overdo a little bit what do you think and so if somebody kills my ox if i'm a farmer in the ancient world like you just killed my ox and then we attack the person and kill the person lex talionis was a way of saying no if they kill your ox then you take their ox it limited violence in the ancient world. It limited barbarism. And so there was this movement. We look at it as barbaric now. But there was this movement towards limiting violence. Do you see that? In this law. To where it looks barbaric to us now. But in its context was actually a step forward. And then on to Jesus. Jesus addresses this law. In Matthew 5.38-42. through 42 In the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And so Jesus takes the eye for an eye, lex talionis and he, he ups that. He makes it a heart issue. And says, wait a second, I don't want you to just react in kind to somebody, I want you to think about your own heart and who you are as a person. And when somebody hurts you, you're actually in a place of power, and you don't have to lash out at them even in kind. You don't, it doesn't have to be tit for tat. You actually have control over your response, and you can rise above. You can rise above a cycle of violence. You can. You cannot return to them just as they've done to you. You can, you can do better than them. And Jesus makes it our heart issue. And, of course, this is in the time of, of the Roman occupation of Jesus' homeland, Palestine, which is now Israel. And so these are things that Roman soldiers did. The, the slap is likely a backhand. And the slap is it, it's an insult. It's a backhanded insult that a Roman centurion might slap some, you know, some member of the native population down. How dare you stand up to me? I, do, I told you to do something. You do it. You didn't do it. Slap them down. And it was an insult. It wasn't attacking their life. It wasn't trying to kill the person. It was an insult. And so Jesus says, if a centurion insults you, turn the other cheek. Meaning, no, you're, I'm not going to attack you back. But if you slap me again, you're going to have to slap me with an open hand. As a person who deserves dignity and respect. And the Roman might say, you know, hey, carry my pack for a mile. Just grab somebody off the street, a citizen, and say, carry my pack and force him. And, and Jesus says, go with him too. Go the extra mile. That's where that's saying, go, go the extra mile. Now, what does, that, what does that say? It's a way of saying, I'm a person of dignity and worth and you don't have power over me. You thought you were using force and domination to make me carry something for you a mile. I'm going to go too. You thought you were going to slap me and insult me and, 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 and push me down. Here's the other cheek. And Jesus is saying here, no, you're not, you're not attacking somebody for insulting you. Remember, it's not, this person's not threatening your life here. They're insulting you but what you're doing is you're standing up for your own dignity and you're stopping a cycle of violence. I'm not going to slap you the way you slap me, but I'm going to stand up for my own dignity. So there's an incredible ethic here of minimizing violence whenever possible, not returning insult for insult, and living above the fray. This is a passage that would change the world. If everybody lived like this at work, what? What? Can you imagine what your family situation would be like or your friends if everybody did this? This would make the world heavenly. It would be incredible. It would be an incredible place to live. Once again, like my son winning the jackpot and his innocence not understanding what took place, that's not the reality that we live in. It should be, but it's not. So does this passage mean if somebody does attack your family, you say, okay, kids, this person... I'm being I'm being serious. Somebody is attacking you and they're intending to rape and murder you. Okay, just turn the other cheek. Is that what this passage means? I don't think so. And people of faith throughout history, there are pacifists, by the way, who would point to this passage and they're pacifists because of their faith in Jesus and they would allow the person to kill them, believing that they can't really defend themselves. Most Christians throughout history would say that a follower of Christ can practice self-defense and defend the lives of others using the minimum amount of force necessary as people who work for peace, if at all possible. We do everything we can to work for peace and minimize violence. We're people who love peace, and we love human life, and we love dignity and worth, and that's what we want to work for. And we do everything possible uh, to work for peace, and at the same time, if somebody's attacking, literally threatening my life, or the lives of people I love, or the lives of people I don't know, then I have the right to stick up up for them. Jewish law would go farther. And Jewish law would say, you have the obligation to defend your own life, to defend the life of your family, and to defend the lives of those around you. If the the violence takes place on the Sabbath, defending this other person's life would would require work on your part, and and Jews don't work on the Sabbath. But the understanding is that if you're a, a, a faithful Jew who's observing the law, just about any Sabbath law can be broken if it's broken defending the life of somebody else or your own. And so the value of life uh, is more important than even the Sabbath laws and Jewish laws. So you have the obligation to save life whenever you can using the minimum amount of force necessary. There are, of course, times when the minimum amount of force is, is stopping the other person at all costs. These are difficult issues, aren't they? And it's, it's a, you know another long sermon. And and we live in such a divided society that it's difficult for us to see these things in perspective and and how our faith speaks. And we live in a time where, let's be honest, the, the chances in, in the southeast valley of Phoenix of your home being broken into are minuscule. The chance or the odds of you ever having to fire a gun are minuscule. You know both sides could point to the, the statistics. And you could say, well, look, I mean, if, if you're not a gangbanger or a drug dealer, the chances of you ever having to use your gun are, are just minuscule. So you don't, you don't need a gun. And the other, the other side could say, well, then, if you're not worried about it, then why can't I just have a gun and leave me alone? And so both sides could look at those statistics, but here's, here's American opinion. So Pew Research, once again, one of the most reputable Polling organizations uh, conducted a study this past fall. Gallup did a similar study last year and found similar results, and they do every year. And the results fluctuate a little bit from year to year, but they've stayed pretty true. Um, the numbers have gone up a little in the past couple of years, uh, but, but they stay pretty true from year to year. So let's look. A way forward. According to scientific polling of Americans, Republicans, uh, Republican-leaning independents, Democrats, Democratic leaning independence, a a poll of everybody in the United States, this is what they find. 92% of Republicans and Republican leaning independents favor preventing people with mental illnesses from buying guns. 91% of Democrats. Okay, so over 9 out of 10 of Democrats and Republicans agree that people who have certain kinds of mental illnesses that would predispose them to violence should not have guns. Let's go to the next slide. Thank you, Susie. 82% of Republicans favor background checks for private gun sales and and sales at gun shows. It's often referred to as the loophole. It exists in some states, not in others. 93% of Democrats favor background checks at private gun sales and sales at gun shows. 82% and 93%. Is there much of a debate there? Let's go to the next one. Thank you, Susie. 88% of Democrats favor banning assault-style weapons. Now, the definition of assault weapon, that's debated. But they're probably thinking of the the ban that took place from '94 to 2004. High capacity magazines, high capacity rifles, semi-automatic rifles like the AR-15. 50% of Republicans favor banning assault style weapons. Are you surprised by that? Half. Half of Republicans favor banning assault style weapons. Let's go to the next slide. Thank you Susie. 87% of Democrats favor banning high capacity magazines maybe of over maybe seven rounds. A magazine holds bullets. So a high-capacity magazine would be like, over a certain number of bullets, we we wanna ban those. Maybe it's over seven bullets, something like that. The idea is a mass shooter has to reload, has to stop and reload, and it gives a chance to take the person down. 54% of Republicans favor banning high-capacity magazines. Are you surprised by that? So we have 50% in the last slide and 54% here. And then in any of these numbers, You add these together, you have way beyond a majority, don't you? Are you surprised by these statistics? By these these polling numbers? Regardless of how you personally feel about the issues, there are other scientific studies that back this up. It's not the only one. That the will of the American people is background checks and uh, banning high-capacity weapons and uh, Pretty clear. The will of the American people. Now, that's not what the current laws are, correct? And like we said last week, there were clear majorities, actually super majorities of Americans that supported immigration laws. And those laws don't get put into effect either. And so last week we said, what, what is it about our system that the will of the American people does not become law? And so there are answers to that. Last week we said, well, you have issues like dark money in politics, you have unlimited donations, you have gerrymandering, where congressional districts are drawn so that there are certain members of Congress that can never lose. So you have a situation where you could have a a percentage of Congress that could hijack every law. Um, We have two medias in this country, depending on what cable news channel you like or what you read on the Internet. And we have conservative media and liberal media, and if you read one or the other, you don't even know what the other half of the country is seeing, what they think. And so it's, it's impossible to have any kind of dialogue about about uh, what the American people really want. Now, if you're a gun rights supporter and you see these numbers, it's horrifying to you. And you may, you may feel like, man, you know, the will of the American people here is infringing upon the second amendment. And uh, I would say, you are free to feel that way. I respect you and, and uh, I think that you can be vocal about your views, you can get involved, you can vote like everybody else. Uh, you, can, you can get involved trying to sway public opinion to your side. But that's the job of anybody who has an issue that they feel strongly about, is that you present facts and evidence and, and you argue your side. And then everybody listens in a democracy, everybody listens to the different sides and then they figure out a way forward. And coming, you know, growing up in the country like I did, I really do think I can, I can see both sides of this issue. And there are people who really are, they, they believe that this infringes on their second amendment rights. And these are good people, law abiding people. And I feel for them, I really do. Uh, because I understand what it can feel like that your culture is being attacked or you feel like your rights are being attacked. And again, I would say, if that's you, stand up for what you believe and argue your case, present your evidence, but let the American people decide. That's how a democracy works, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. I think, obviously, what's driving public opinion here are mass shootings. The sad fact is, when Americans look at domestic violence situations or they look at mostly young black men losing their lives, most Americans pass that off. It's not happening to them. There's a racial component, and those numbers are not going to sway public opinion. We see the public opinion tends to be swayed by mass shootings, which are on the uptick, and right now we haven't had one in a few weeks. We're going to again, we know that's going to happen, and the debate will be renewed every time. I would say to those who are ardent gun rights supporters, and you would like to maintain the laws as they are, Maybe I would make a suggestion. I think mass shootings now are functioning as terrorism. Mass shootings now are functioning in the United States as incidences of of domestic terrorism. Mass shootings are functioning as domestic terrorism. And how do you feel about terrorists? Of course, you want to stop them. You want to prevent terrorist attacks from happening. If we think about 9-11, almost 3,000 Americans were killed when hijackers used airplanes as weapons. And how did we respond to that? We went to war. Uh, But what is flying like now? When you go to the airport, is it a breeze now to just go to the airport and get on an airplane? What do you do? There's this thing called the TSA, right? I I like to refer to them as the shampoo confiscating administration, the TSA. And what what do they do? You have to take off your shoes and your belt and empty your pockets and put everything into a tray and stand in a long line and there's a conveyor belt. and And you go into a machine and hold up your hands and somebody literally looks at you naked and then you put your clothes back on and go get on the airplane. And it's a huge annoyance. It's, it's a bother. It's invasive. It's a hassle. Why do we do that? Because it gives law enforcement one more chance at stopping somebody from using an airplane as a weapon and killing innocent people. I would suggest if you are a supporter of, of, of current gun rights in America, maybe you don't find me persuasive. I hope, I hope you don't feel like I'm attacking you. I would suggest that maybe whatever gun laws end up looking like, they're gonna feel like the TSA, where it's gonna be a hassle, it's gonna be annoying, but law-abiding citizens will be able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. They're gonna have access to firearms. I don't support confiscation. I don't think that you should be blocked from getting a firearm, you know, if, you know, according to your Second Amendment right. At the same time, I think that it's probably going to feel like the TSA, that, it's, that whatever measures are put in place, it's gonna give law enforcement one more chance at catching a domestic terrorist before they take the lives of innocent people. And in closing, with all the emotion around this topic, a few years ago, you know, Michael Brown was a resident of Ferguson, Missouri. This is August of 2014. He had a clash with uh, a police officer and, uh, and uh, who felt threatened by him and, and Michael Brown was killed and there were riots that took place in Ferguson, Missouri. Police used tear gas and they were in riot gear. And it looked like, you know, something happening in another country uh, with protesters clashing with these SWAT teams. And the governor of Missouri appointed Missouri State Patrol, uh, the Missouri State Patrol led by Captain Ronald Johnson to take over security in Ferguson, Missouri. And the difference was night and day. When Captain Ronald Johnson took over, he, uh, he changed the tone. He changed the atmosphere of what was happening in, in Ferguson, and uh, here was the result. Here's a, ca- a photo of Captain Ronald Johnson. It's him hugging one of the protesters. He said, "We're going to have a different approach, and we're going to have the approach that we're in this together. We're not going to let our city be torn apart by violence and the strong feelings around- and justified strong emotion around that violence. We're not going to let it tear us apart." And he went out and he hugged protesters and. And he even marched with protesters and de-escalated arguments and, and, uh, and he calmed down the situation. He said, I'm not afraid to be in this crowd. And not only did he march, but he vowed not to blockade the streets. He set up a media staging center. He assured the residents had the right to assemble and protest and they were not infringed upon. They could speak their mind and, and they could say what they needed to say without being hurt, and the officers took off their gas masks. And he said, when I see a young lady cry because they fear this uniform, that's a problem. We've got to solve that. And he went around hugging and kissing and slapping backs and, and, and worked for peace. This is, an, this is a state patrolman working for peace wherever possible. I thought, that's a, that's a picture of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in, in this debate, in any, when there are strong emotions, that we have the opportunity... We're gonna, we believe what we believe and we have strong convictions and we can speak those and we can stand up for what we believe and argue our case and at the same time the way we do that makes all the difference in the world and we have the example of somebody like Captain Ron Johnson. The way he handled the situation was to try to be a bridge builder wherever possible, to listen and to make sure people could speak their minds and he didn't let uh, a violent situation become more violent if we're concerned about violence in America. We wouldn't want the way we respond to violence in America to be violent, whether in action or in our words, because we can be violent in our speech, but we wouldn't want to oppose violence with violence. That wouldn't make any sense. We would want to speak our minds and stand up for what we believe and vote and protest and march as people who love peace. If you'd be willing to stand with me right now, I thought maybe we'd close with this prayer, and then we're going to close with, by singing one more song together. This is the prayer that's credited to St. Francis. And I wonder if our band's going to come up. I wonder if you would say this prayer with me out loud, line by line. And may this be our prayer before we sing. No matter where we fall on this particular issue or any issue, maybe we be people who want to be instruments of peace, people that God can work through for peace no matter what we believe. So if you'd be willing, I wonder if you'd say this prayer out loud together with me now. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive and it's in pardoning that we are pardoned and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.